Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds, a show on television. It's been around for a long time. And it's a fascinating uh, story. You know, there's another similar show. It's called Law and Order Criminal Intent. And what happens on these shows is that uh, an elite group of profilers or scholars or psychologists or forensic experts analyze the criminal mind on criminal minds. It's they, they profile the most notorious criminals to try and figure out what makes them tick and then to anticipate what they might do next. Well, Psalm 36, at least in the first four verses, is the Old Testament criminal minds doing better than any forensic psychologist or um, criminologist to expose the heart of the wicked, what makes the wicked tick. David says, I have an oracle in, in the Hebrew language, it's deep within my heart as to what governs the wicked. But unlike the present legal system uh, and uh, rehabilitation systems, well, this one provides the true rehabilitation uh, for the darkest criminal mind. And it's very interesting. I hope you'll pay close attention with me today as we walk through Psalm 36 because it's interesting how it's laid out. Uh, We're studying through many of the Psalms as a church family together. If you're new to us, we've been enjoying getting deep insight into our hearts and into the hearts of people in this world. And so uh, Psalm 36 is, um, is unusual in that most Psalms are of a certain type. Remember, sometimes we study a lament psalm, and that's when you express frustration and complaint to God. Other psalms are just a hymn of praise. And the psalmist's heart explodes over the glory of God and delights in God in a hymn of praise. And then other psalms are just prayers, simple prayers. And Psalm 36 has all three of them pushed in together in the same psalm. It's very interesting, and it's jarring how it's laid out before us. You know, on, uh, on shows like Criminal Minds or Criminal Intent, where they try and figure out the bad guy, I don't know about you, but I think the best episodes are those where the good guys are studying the bad guys And somewhere in the course of the plot, the good guys suddenly have their own demons exposed within them. And they are are troubled and thrown off balance by what they see in themselves. And the audience is supposed to follow along. And, you know, maybe that's what's for us today as well. Let's go through these. uh, Verses 1 through 4 is the lament that expresses insight into the evil heart. Verses 5 through 9 is this hymn of praise. And verses 10 through 12 is this prayer. So look closely with me now in the first four verses at this rebellious man. What do you think of him? Where do you see yourself in him? There is no fear of God before his eyes. And this is the first great insight into the sinful heart. Maybe they believe in God. Maybe they don't. 
If you ask them, they might say they were an atheist or maybe not. But, even if they believe in God, so what? They live like an atheist. And it says there is no fear of God and then something interesting. Where does it locate? Where does David locate the issue? He says, before their eyes. It has something to do with sight. And you know, it doesn't have to do just with physical sight, does it? It has to do with understanding the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the soul. And the eyes of the mind are blind. There's a spiritual reality they don't see. And verses 2 through 4 continue to connect the problem to the eyes. For in his own eyes, something happens. You see, there was no fear of God before his eyes. Now, in his own eyes, something is going on. And it's causing spiritual blindness. And King David has deep insight for us into the nature of spiritual blindness. If we can get a a clue, we can see in our own selves the nature of our own uh, blind spots. But for the wicked, of course, there is, he's describing this person out of control in their sin. And there is this sin, which is, it's by definition, it's like the, it is the willful choosing of stepping outside of the boundaries that God has established for his creatures, for his humans. It is a choosing to go where I should not go. And whether it's murder with a knife or it's the proverbial hand in the cookie jar when your mom said, save those till after dinner. Sin is this willful choosing to step outside of the boundaries that God has created. But that's not all. According to David, sin is also about blindness. That is, not seeing what needs to be seen in order to live the way God created us to live. And we learn here in, in, in many other passages of the Bible that, that the sinner is always willfully blind and blindly willful. And here's how it functions. David says... The wicked man deceives himself. He thinks that he's better than he really is. I'm a good person. I really am. And I deserve respect. I look at the patterns of my life, and you know what? They're pretty good. <laughs> I, I look back over my performance, and I'm quite satisfied with it. Oh, yes, I'm not beholden to all of those old-fashioned rules... Uh, that, that other people get hung up on. And I, actually, I congratulate myself for that. I've learned to take control of my life. And I'm going to live life the way it needs to be lived, the way that I see it. And, and he's very smooth. I'm doing a good job. And there's this devastating effect, he says. He flatters himself too much to detect or to hate his sin. Flattery. Self-flattery. I don't know about you. It's like, it's like 
the cartoon image of the skinny guy, the really skinny guy in front of the mirror. He's, you know, he's just kind of, he's skin and bones except for maybe a paunch belly, and he looks in the mirror and he sees Mr. Universe. Or maybe, you know, the guy sucks up, holds it in, and stands in front of the mirror and sees Mr. Universe, whatever. He flatters himself too much to see. And this sin is far worse because of the blindness. It's willful blindness, though. It's not like, like you had some genetic condition. He wants to be blind because he wants to believe the flattery. The Bible teaches very clearly that I am responsible to see my sin, even though the Bible also teaches that I prefer not to and I suppress it, as Romans 1 says, I suppress it in unrighteousness. Now, I'm responsible to see my sin. I know that that's true for the terrorist, for those horrible murderers who blow themselves up and kill innocent people. And I say, yes, truly, they are blind to their terrible sin, and I despise them, and they should despise their sin. But what about me? What about me? I want to believe that my sin is okay. And so I flatter myself, and I say I'm doing my best. I've been forced to think about my sins a lot lately. The reason for that is, and I have permission to share this, is I've hurt some people. I've hurt some people in the church. And I've been confronted with ways that my own zeal, my own energy that I have for things to go well and to do well in the life of the church, uh, my, my passion for efficiency and my passion for effectiveness and my passion for excellence for the Lord. Cause me sometimes to just run roughshod over people. And it's strange when someone else doesn't do things quite like how I think they should be done. Then I bark. And I correct. And I speak out. Sometimes even in front of other people. And they feel insulted, as that's understandable. They feel hurt and belittled by somebody who they thought was supposed to be loving them with Jesus' love. See, I become bossy and I become boorish. Those are two good words to describe what happens to me when I flatter myself so much to think that my commitment to to whatever silly standard I might have uh, allows me to violate the law of God which says love your brothers and sisters build them up, edify them you're using some man's standard to break the law of God to love other people and what's the worst is I don't even see it 
unless God is merciful to me, and God's been merciful to me. And um, I've been confronted with some of these things. Nina, my wife, uh, cut me to the quick the other day. You know, Nina has a master's degree in management. And she said, one of the things I learned in this master's degree in management is that efficiency and effectiveness can often be the enemy of love, John. Ooh, wow. Anybody else here love efficiency and effectiveness? Anybody else here have think people should be doing things the way they think they should do them? And anyone else here ever become bossy and unkind in their words? Well, get in line. Because you know what? These people were hurt. They weren't overly sensitive. They were hurt. I'm very, very thankful for people who forgive. When the Holy Spirit showed me, you know, I went to these people. And one of them, as I raised it, you know, I, 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 I even I confessed it on the answering machine. I was just so upset with what I'd done. I just left it out. She said, oh, my whole family heard you, and we laughed, and, and uh, we, we said, we forgive you, John, even though it's the answering machine, you know? And, and, um, and, and they forgave me. Another person, you know, she gave me a big hug, and she said, you know, the gospel is so great. <laughs> she said, I love you. But you did hurt me. I'm sorry. And she forgave me. But you see, I couldn't see it. I didn't see it. I was blind. I flattered myself so much. My zeal for my image of the way things are supposed to be. Now here's, here's what scares me, is that sitting in this room right now, there are other people that I've done this to. And you know what? You don't want to talk to me because you're afraid I'll just be bossy and boorish again and that I'll do what other type A leader types do, which is just tell you, you know, it's your fault. And, and that I'll just run roughshod over you again. So you don't even want to talk to me. All I can say is, if I have done that, please come. Please call me. I'll buy you lunch. You sit down with me and you tell me, help me see, help me see that I can ask your forgiveness, that you can forgive me and the transaction can be completed, Okay. David goes on, he describes this downward path, you know, that you get on. And there's a warning here. He stopped doing good. There's a warning for me, a warning for you. Because the life, I've often said, the Christian life is like walking up a down escalator. And as a kid, that's the, like one of the funnest things in the world to do, to see if you can dash up the down escalator when your mom's not looking. But that's, that's not a laughing matter in the Christian life. Because it is a down, there is a 
downward drag. There is a battle that goes on, a spiritual battle that goes on in the soul, in every one of our souls. And when you stop progressing in your own growth, in your own relationship with the Lord, and you're on a downward escalator, what happens? See, Charles Spurgeon, when he comments on this, he says, he says that the sinner quiets his conscience. See if you can get this. The sinner quiets his conscience. The conscience is saying, hey, John, you really shouldn't talk to people like that. Okay? My conscience is operating even before I speak. Stop yourself, John. You shouldn't talk to people like that. But I, I quiet my conscience. My conscience gets quiet. And then I so deceive myself that my sin seems appropriate to me. It's a downward escalator. See, maybe I was here, but I got down here because I I suppressed. The other word is suppress. That's the biblical term for how this operation happens in us and why we are morally culpable even for that downward movement that happens. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful, and I can relate to this. What are ways I sin with my mouth? Exaggeration, misrepresentation, protecting my reputation. These things, these things are like skin. They're like my skin on me. Are they like your skin too, maybe, some of us? And if the image of sight doesn't work, can you smell it? Can you start to smell it? It's, you know, on Monday, on Monday, the milk in the back of the lower section is starting to smell a little bit. But by Friday, it's rancid. Paul Tripp, who is a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he writes this. He, sa- he writes, All of us struggle with pockets of spiritual blindness. And in these places, None of us sees or hates or rejects our sin. And so while we hate the sin of the terrorist and the murderer and the person who steals the pension fund of a little old lady, yes, we should hate that. Nonetheless, where is there a pocket of spiritual blindness in your life? Because there is an odor. Can you smell it? There is a vision to be seen of your sin. Can you see it? And then suddenly, in verse 5, as David is going along, he breaks into a hymn, and this fresh, sweet, clean breeze just runs through the psalm and comes into the sanctuary here this morning. And he starts to sing phrase after astounding phrase of praises to God about the the character of God. And don't miss this. There's a contrast here. But when David wants to contrast the wicked with somebody else, he doesn't start with himself. And I have to tell you, what is the knee-jerk response when I see the bad guy over there in my my own mind is what I want to do is I want to say, well, I'm not that bad. And I'll compare that bad guy with me and, of course, build myself up and feel superior. And David will have none of that. Where does David go when he's going to show the contrast with the wicked? 
He goes to God. He goes to the Lord. Do you see this here? Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness like mighty mountains. Your justice like the great deep that's the ocean. How priceless is your unfailing love. What a contrast. Yeah, David doesn't say, why, I would never... David does as he looks at God. He says, what a contrast. In verse 5, the the word love, sometimes it's translated love. Some translations call it mercy. Other translations use loving kindness. Which is it? It's all three of them. This this Hebrew chesed, it's, it's all three. Love, mercy, loving kindness. Why would David say this is important to think about as we've talked about willful blindness I think you know it's because the love of God it is the love of God that sets us free from willful sinful blindness if you come to me you say John you hurt me and I and and you scold me what do I do? I dig in my heels. And I say, well, wait, wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait a minute. You just don't understand. Somebody comes to you, and they just scold you. What's your initial reaction? You say, oh, thank you so much. Hit me again. But these, these people that I just described to you, did you catch the difference? They were not like that. And the one actually led talking about the gospel and the love of God. They, they, they led with that. And their expression of love and their pointing me to God's love made me hate my sin. And it made me sorry. and grateful for their forgiveness. How great is this love? How big do you think it is? David says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's why we sang that song a little earlier. I wanted us to sing this. How high and how wide, how deep and how long, how sweet and how strong is your love. How lavish your grace. How faithful your ways. How great is your love, O Lord. And we love to sing this song as a church because we need to hear it again and again and again, don't we? And we want to hear it. It comes right from this verse. High? If you want to understand how, how the magnitude, if you want to get the magnitude of the love of God, you get out a tape measure, and you start over at this end of the universe, and you draw it out, and you go all the way over to this end of the universe. And then you will begin to get an idea of the magnitude, the size of the love of God. Do you understand how big God's love is? How huge. Verse 6 begins to talk about his righteousness. And verse 7 about his judgments or his justice. And here you have this picture. When you think about God's righteousness, David says, think about the Rocky Mountains. Think about the Alps. 
immovable, firmly fixed. What does this mean? Can God be bribed? Can God be manipulated? Can God be pushed around? Not if his justice and his righteousness is like the Rocky Mountains. Nothing's going to move the Swiss Alps. Is that good news? Well, yeah, that's good news. It's wonderful. Because it means that evil and wickedness will be held to account. And if you're being bullied in school and nobody sticks up for you, and if, and if somebody in business has stuck a knife in your back and they have put you in a bad place in the corporate world, and I've heard from some of you the stories of the way people have just dug that knife and then twisted it when it was in there and there was nothing you could do about it. When someone is abused physically, sexually, with verbally, and nobody comes to their aid, when, when terrorists inflict pain on people and no one helps, this verse tells us that the righteousness of God is like a mountain. Will not, it will not be moved, and there will be a judgment day. And he says the justice of God is, is big just like the oceans. I was on an ocean a couple weeks ago, and the ocean is big, and the ocean is deep. The psalmist says that is what God's justice is like. And this is good, but it's also terrible. You know, in our... In our new members class that we have. Remember the cross chart that we go through together. We go through it and we say that sometimes as we go on in the Christian life, our sense of the cross shrinks and, and we don't appreciate all that Jesus has done for us. And so then when God's great righteousness and holiness becomes clear to us, we, we can't bear to see it and we start to minimize God. We, we make his righteousness less. Oh, he's, he's, he's a reasonable guy. God's a reasonable guy. He wouldn't think what I'm doing is wrong. His righteousness is like the great mountains. His justice is like the ocean deeps. Then I have just blasphemed if I would say that about God. He is holy, holy, holy. But, even though that's bad news, it's also the foundation for the gospel. That what we believe, what we said we believe about the cross of Jesus Christ. And Charles Spurgeon, I have to quote him again, he says this. He says, no awe-inspiring mountain scenery, no ocean enormity can equal the thrill that fills the soul when it beholds the Son of God slain as victim to the justice of the inflexible lawgiver. Did you catch that? You want a thrill, sure, go, go take a tour of the, of the Alps. You want a thrill, sure, go see the ocean. But take a look at the cross, Spurgeon says. And there you see the innocent Son of God receiving the wrath of the immovable, inflexible, unfathomable lawgiver whose laws are perfect and holy. Jesus died the death that I deserve. That is awe-inspiring. 
And as David sings about how you learn about the love of God, he, he not only talks about the mountain, uh, uh, talks about the heavens and the universe, he not only talks about the oceans and how deep they are, then he says, look around you and see how he feeds the beasts of the field and he keeps everybody alive. Six billion people and how many billion animals? He keeps them alive day after day in the circle of life. And God sustains them all, feeds them all. The most amazing miracle reflection of his love all packed into this one verse God is great and so David erupts how priceless is your unfailing love and the image goes on to high people and low people God does not leave them in their wicked self-flattery don't miss this he shows mercy who gets mercy high and low rich and poor Young and old, strong and weak. Jesus Christ looked out over Jerusalem. Do you remember? What did he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed for you to come. Gather yourself to me like the hen gathers her chicks. What an image, this beautiful image. And David gives it to us here. They come under the shadow of his wings, but Jesus wept. Do we weep for people who won't come? Jesus says, come. Why? Because there you feast on the abundance of his house. What is this all about? The temple wasn't even built yet, so obviously David was not referring to the great temple in Jerusalem. Yes, we, we many of us, have wonderful material blessings. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, if you belong to the Lord then you can feast on spiritual food that is better than any feast on earth. What kind of food? The bread of heaven. Jesus said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Sometimes when Elias prays for our church, he prays, let manna come, let manna come to the church. What's he talking about? Jesus said, I am the true bread, or I am the manna that came down from heaven that gives life to the world. That's in John 6. And when we are thirsty in our souls, Jesus stood on the last day of the feast. Remember, he said, come and drink. What is that? Come drink of me. This is the, the, the abundance of the house of God that's offered for you. If we will seek his face when we walk, when we feed with Jesus, Jesus himself sets us free from the willful blindness of our sin. And David sings, in your light we see light. Bathed in light. And guess what? We're back to the eyes again. This is beautiful. The problem with the wicked guy he doesn't see. There's no fear of God before his eyes. What's problem? In his own eyes, he flatters himself. And now, he says, but in your light, when your light gets turned on, Lord, in your light, we see light. And so he collapses onto his knees and he prays, verses 10 through 12, in prayer. This third section, continue your love to those who know you. Continue your righteousness to the upright in heart. That's what he's asking for. He's saying, Jesus, would you continue to give me your love because I want more love? Would you continue to infuse your righteousness into me because I need more of your righteousness? He says, keep the proud away. See, I know what pride can do. Do you know? Pride is very dangerous. Keep the proud man away from me. 
David doesn't want to be influenced by the proud man. He doesn't want to become the proud man. Pride is the devil's playground. Because when I have pride, I flatter myself too much to see my sin. He even looks at the wicked and he sees the wicked are thrown down in verse 12. And what is that a picture of? That is the victory of God over evil. And it is foreshadowing the very casting of people into hell on the last day. And how uncomfortable that makes us. But our Lord Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than anybody else. The casting down into the second death. And it is a reality that David says, and there is no recovery from that, not able to get up. But you, today, you are able to rise. We are able to rise. As the Lord lifts us up, we are able to rise. And so David's prayer, I'm asking today to, for it to become your prayer. Continue your love on me, O Lord. Continue to work your righteousness in me. Can you make that your prayer and the desire of your heart today? I'm going to ask you to do that. Uh, get in line behind me. I need more of his love. I need more of his righteousness in my life. But together, don't be hardened. Hebrews 3.13, it says, Do not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And he's talking to Christians. He's not just talking about the terrorists. He's talking to us. Where do you have blind spots? You know, we, we love to say around here, God loves you just the way you are. I like this. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay just as you are. He's in the business of renewing, reshaping, rebuilding, making you new. Well, we all know it's one thing to say honey is sweet. I've told you that before. Jonathan Edwards says you can know that honey is sweet, but it's another thing to taste honey. It's one thing to know in your mind that God's love expands bigger than the heavens, that his faithfulness is higher than the skies, and it's another thing to let his love wash over your soul. And that's what I want us to do now. It happens in worship, you know. It happens in worship, personal worship, in your own quiet place at home. It happens here Sunday after Sunday. It happens as we say, Lord, continue your love to me. So right now, let's bow our heads. Let's, let's, let's join our hearts. Let us pray to the Lord, our Father in heaven. Holy, righteous, just is your name, but also loving is your name. Merciful is your name. How great is your love, O Lord. We pray now as we, as we come to you, we, we invite you to show us places of spiritual blindness in our lives. A bold prayer. Show me, Lord. Show me where I'm flattering myself too much to detect my sin. Show me. Show me the cross. Show me your love. Remind me, as that video we saw, remind me that 
I am precious to you, Lord. So precious, you're not going to let me stay with my conscience quieted and my sin acceptable. But you want to really do work and business in my life. I, I want that, Lord. I really do. Can you say that? What's, what is he saying to you? Someone else here today says, what I need to know is that his love is continuing because I'm not sure he loves me. I'm not sure if he really sees me who I am, that he would forgive like those nice people in the church forgave John, but, but I don't think God could forgive me. And so today, get out your measuring tape and start measuring the universe to see the magnitude of his love and his grace toward you. And then give him your life. There is therefore now no condemnation through Christ. He has set me free. I worship you. You have set me free from sin and death. And though my body is weak, your grace, Lord, holds me secure. And now you call me to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and...